0: Welcome back to the Boot Room Podcast. It's been a while. I don't think I've been able to do a podcast since before Christmas with life, kids and work, taking up loads of time, but I'm delighted to be back and I've got loads of podcasts planned over the next few weeks. So on to tonight's episode, I am joined by Callum Walsh. Callum is the Senior Physical Performance Coach at Huddersfield Town. Uh, He's previously spent some time with the Turkish national team. He spent some time in Brazil working with Atletico Paranis and also with Cardiff City. Joining me and Callum will be Christy Holly. He's the opposition analyst at the US national women's team and also spent some time as head coach at Sky Blue. So what you'll find on tonight's episode is is Callum is actually recording the podcast from Huddersfield's team hotel before the game against Brighton tomorrow. And and by the magic of technology, uh, he was actually able to join us before their team meeting at quarter past nine and then come back to the podcast after the team meeting. So we were able to have a good chat with both the lads. So thank you both for your time, gents. I hope you all enjoy listening as much as I did uh, recording it. As always, send me your feedback, tell your mates, share the podcast on social media, and if possible, leave me a podcast rating on iTunes. Enjoy episode five of the Boot Room podcast. How are you, gents? You well? All good, good thanks, mate. Jay. All good. So what I want to do, Cal, um, obviously you've listened to every single episode that we've done on the Bootroom so far, so I'm sure you're, you're very familiar with, uh, uh, with the opening questions. But what I want to do, I want to start with... What is your favourite football memory? Now, that can be playing, watching or coaching.
1: Um, I'd have to say it's probably not one specific memory, but maybe a kind of a two-week period, which was the, uh, the time that Cardiff got promoted. So obviously we were on a high. Um, there was a controversial end of our season that I think, if you remember, Hull had to beat uh, Watford's result. And they were waiting in the tunnel. And then you had the Troy Deeney incident um, with the goal against Leicester. And, uh, oh, the, end, the the mad end-to-end end one. mad ending. And if you remember, the League One, uh, I think it was Doncaster and Brentford, had a similar kind of ending as well. And it was just that whole kind of two-week surreal period that was everything I loved about football in terms of the highs, the lows, the roller coasters, thinking you were there, then it getting snatched away and... Or being on the opposite end of it, thinking that everything was over, and then the the kind of saviour cometh. So um, that two week period probably sits uh, amongst the highest for just pure enjoyment of everything I loved about the game from lots of different levels.
0: Okay, good one. And then the next one is: um, which players
1: did you have on your wall as posters growing up? Um, this is a really sad one. Um, I had three posters which was uh, randomly a Portsmouth team photo. um, That was the first game I ever went to. Um, And then the two big ones were a picture of Eric Torsfit, the Tottenham goalkeeper, and Paul Gascoigne, who was also at Tottenham. Um, And that was just after they won the FA Cup in around that time. So uh, where, where
0: did the where did the goalkeeper one come from? I never uh, you know you you are not the tallest in the world, mate. So I never had you down as a, a as a goalkeeper or wanna be goalkeeper.
1: Yeah, well, well, this was a strange thing. Was uh, despite my um my physical stature only being <laughs> kind of six foot, um, if I had four inch heels on, um, I always wanted to be a goalkeeper when I was little. So Eric Torsfit and Peter Shilton and Chris Woods. I think it was Chris Woods because he was the only person that had the same initials as me. Um I don't know, rant, you know what kids are like. And um yeah, I just always wanted to be a goalkeeper. I used to, I used to get goalkeeping kits as opposed to outfield playing kits. And then I think I realized when I was about seven that I was never gonna be above five foot eight and uh I should kiss out dream goodbye. <laughs>
0: Christy, on on to you, mate, and,
1: and we you've
0: been on before, which is uh, you know you're you're an old timer at this stage oh um, so I'm not going to ask you the same questions as I've asked Cal because I've asked you them before but I'm going to ask you a question that I wish somebody would ask me so if you want to return the favour lads that would be fantastic is
2: Christy what were your favourite pair of football boots that's an interesting one um, I think my favourite pair that I was able to find a couple of times back to back were the Umbro XAI's they were a nice black pair of boots. They had a little bit of white in the middle of them, which I tried to scrub out once in a while. But I was able to, uh, I was able to track down those a few times back to back, nice and comfortable, and still couldn't strike the ball. Still couldn't run and do much with it. But they definitely looked nice on my feet. But other than that, they would if going gone ahead. If
0: there was ever a footballer that would wear a pair of black football boots with no colors in it would be you mate i have to say and i mean that as the ultimate compliment
2: (laughs) (laughs) i definitely like that i remember when i was a bit younger i loved the copas i couldn't get enough of them i used to take the stripes off them and uh fold the tongue over so i was walking around thought it was brilliant you know i had the nice black boots but um yeah no copas were always uh tried and trusted and then i just went through a nice wee phase where i had a couple of pairs of those ombre and i could you know I, i felt that i could actually maybe uh keep up with some decent players once in a while. But what about you, Jay? I know you you had a nice pair of... I remember at one point you had a nice pair of those pink mercurial vapours that you ran around the midfield in with your sweatband.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, me and a pair of pink football <laughs> boots, maze I just... I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think I've got that one in the locker, maze so I have to be honest. Um, if, if I had to pick... And thank you for being so kind to ask me the question. Uh, if I had to pick, it's either the Adidas Predator Accelerators that Beckham wore in the 98 World Cup uh, I just had a really good season in those and I just you know they were ridiculously comfortable and you could get just enough whip on the ball or tried and tested Adidas World Cup uh, Copas no messing or if I had to push maybe Puma King, the classics, you know?
2: Yes, yes, I did enjoy the Puma King. I will say as well, I I actually always wanted a pair of Preds, but I was never allowed them. They were too expensive. But they definitely were a very attractive-looking pair of boots, but they were probably a little bit for the the tier above me.
0: (laughs) Well, do you know what happened? Weirdly enough, as I was growing up, I'd always be able to bribe my mum to get me the the expensive ones, right? But I'd do without dinner for the next six weeks, but I'd have a good pair of football boots. But then as I got older and my mum stopped buying me the football boots, suddenly, I don't know why, but my taste in football boots got less and less and I started to, I started to get the cheaper ones and make do, you know? Now your son's uh, not like them either. <laughs> Exactly, mate. Yeah, he plays in his school shoes. <laughs> uh, right. I want to. I want to move on because I, I suppose I'm mindful of of Cal giving us his time, and and uh, and, and what I want to do is I want to pick your brains. We've got a couple of good uh, topics that I want to sink our teeth into tonight. And I suppose for the for the benefit of the listeners, um, just in, in relation to to how myself and, and Cal met, we were uh, we we met at university, Liverpool John at Moores University, and and we played football together. And I was actually telling this story today when I uh, was talking about who was on the podcast tonight, uh, and I was telling how you know me, me, and Cal would be playing together, and and all of a sudden, uh, you know, he was doing very well in his coaching. He was he was at Liverpool's academy at the at the time, um, and I'm not sure if I ever told you this uh, personally, Cal, but the, I remember you, you being given the job as the as the first team coach and. I always, always thought to myself, you know, there were some some big characters there um, and you were of the same age as these lads. Um, you know, you'd been teammates, you'd been one of the lads. Uh, and then all of a sudden you were kind of thrown into this role as as, as kind of first team coach. And, it, and, you know, it was probably your first time uh, coaching adults, if if you will, which which is a different kettle of fish altogether. And I have to say from, from one of the very first sessions, in fact, it, I remember it well, the first session that you took with us, I actually really enjoyed the coaching sessions and I actually found you one of the most innovative coaches that that I'd played under. I think in, in non-league, it was always kind of tried and tested, experienced, old coaches who probably, you know, their their, their approach to the game was a little bit draconian. It, it wasn't exactly the most exciting stuff. So when you came in, you really challenged me as a player and, and, and got me to, to think differently about the game. Um so I suppose the first question to ask is, you know, you've, you've gone from the dizzy heights of, of coaching uh, at Liverpool, John Moores University, to, to coaching in the Premier League. So, so where did it all go wrong, mate?
1: Well, yeah, it's, um, you guys probably set me on the, uh, the downward path early doors. Um, and I and thought if I could handle you, lot, I could probably handle most people, to be fair. Um, yeah, it's always a tricky one. I think if I look back now, I probably think I actually really struggled. Um with that transition, if I if I look back on it now and I think looking back over my career, is your kind of similar ages to players, is it isn't it isn't always easy. So you've kind of got to win the will in a in, in a different way. You, you can't be that um dictator type, right, this is what you're gonna do, whether you like it or not. And I think that was probably a good lesson when I started going into senior football when when I started at Cardiff or whatnot, because at the time, I was sort of 25, 26, working with first-team players. And ultimately, the vast majority of the squad were probably older than me. Um, it tells me now that I'm getting older because now I look around the squad and there's not a single player that's, uh, that's older than me. So I am older than all the players, which makes me feel really old now. Um, but I think you learn and you develop. I think the key thing is you've got to be true to yourself. Um, and, and I'm not a big... Um, screamer shouter type type person I'm not a really strict type person but I like trying maybe get things the other way in terms of trying to get people interested trying to pose pose the right questions trying to get people kind of stimulate people to come around to my way of thinking as opposed to saying no you will do it this way whether you like it or not because I don't think I've ever had that sort of character I think that as a coach is you've got to you've got to be true to yourself as a coach. And I think ultimately is if you try to be the opposite to who you are, there's no right and wrong, but you know, if, if you're a strict disciplinarian type guy and you try to be friendly, ultimately, I think it somewhere it will fall down when you're tired and seasons are long, you kind of get caught out and then vice versa. You know, if you're a relaxed kind of guy and you try to be a dictator, uh, dictator ultimately you get to the point where you're like, it's just not me. You know, you work in, how many hours a week you've been on the road and you're just tired and you just fall back into your natural um, behaviour. So it was one of those I just tried to be true to to who I was and manage things my way um, and then just kind of hone that skill um, as you get further and further down the line. And And I think probably after the experiences I've had and the challenges I've had in different cultures and whatnot, I think that's been really helpful for me today now when I'm working with a lot more foreign players um, and understanding people from different cultures and that sort of thing. So it's a bit of a long winded way of going about it, but I've just had to try and hone that and reflect on things and how I've handled situations pretty regularly to make sure that I, if I do make a mistake that I'm not dropping the same bollock over and over again.
0: And I, and I think the, the important thing is, and you, and you touched on it there, and we've we've spoken about this in previous podcasts. I actually think there's, um, you know, there's no tougher tougher place than a dressing room for for an imposter or somebody suffering from from imposter syndrome. You know, the players, players, particularly strong players, you know, they can they can sniff out somebody that maybe isn't as confident or maybe is putting on a front. And as you said, it, you know, if you if you start off on the wrong footing, and then perhaps you're not being as natural becomes very, very difficult to keep that facade up over a sustained period of time, and, as you said, you're gonna fall back into bad habits and then you know as a as a knock on effect to that potentially you you know you lose those players or you lose the trust
1: of those players I should say a hundred percent a hundred percent and and I think that's the key thing is if players know who you are, good, bad, or indifferent, they know what to expect. I think the big thing with players is trust and and ultimately it's not whether they whether they like what you do or not you know i I've seen things where Um, particularly in the fitness industry where there's lots of kind of fads. Oh, you know, we have to do this, we have to do this, we have to do this. And I've seen players that will be like, well, hold on, six months ago, all you guys were telling us that we shouldn't do that, and now you're telling us we should do it. And then six months later, they kind of change again and change again and change again. So players are kind of looking at them going, hold on, six months ago you said don't do it. One year ago you said I should do it. So what is it? So again, you've kind of got to be – true with with what you believe in and not just go with fads um and secondly if, if you are going to make a change actually be honest and say listen lads you know i know we did this before but we're going to try this for a b and c because if you don't they'll just be like they're not they're not daft they're not stupid they and they never forget and they'll, they'll absolutely tear you apart so trying to mitigate those kind of circumstances just by being kind kind of upfront and honest with them i think really helps
0: and 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 Christy, in terms of the, the the roles that you've had, obviously you've had a variety of roles, whether it's head coach or, or working on the analytical side of things. How would you say from the the first roles that you, that you've taken? How have you evolved as a coach, and how has your um uh, you know how has your approach changed from from role to role?
2: I think uh, you're you're obviously you're evolving every day, and you know you learn from different mistakes, you learn from different experiences that will hopefully make you. Um, Ultimately, a better coach and maybe a better leader overall to the the people that you're working around. But I think when I first uh, got involved and in I was working at the the younger ages, um, and I I think you and I have talked about this before. It's amazing how much you learn about the game and learn what you do and don't know when you're you're starting at the grassroots and you're you're really sitting trying to justify a simple simple action to a bunch of kids. So you know that that asks questions to yourselves. But over over time, then. Uh, I moved in, I was a was reserve assistant coach, reserve head coach, and then um as then I was the assistant coach with the first team and that was that was very enjoyable. Um the, something that, that I realize when I look back on it is being the assistant coach is often the easiest job in the world. Um because you got the you've got the opportunity to really work with some Extremely talented players. You can build relationships and build bonds and and build that trust between yourself and the coaching staff. Um, but often it's the head coach who's the person that has to manage the situation when they face adversity. So, as I as I went through the the uh, the assistant coaching role, I definitely tried to be aware of the surroundings of um, people who've been in the game a lot longer than me and, and see what lessons i could take from them because at some point you know i felt that maybe i will be a head coach and ultimately then as a head coach i realized that uh you know you, you definitely have to take a step back um, and you're looking to see a bigger picture and it was interesting you know and all the time that i've coached i've always enjoyed the hands-on in this um hands-on experience where you're you're working closely with the players and, and you're walking your way through different exercises at different parts of the uh, session. And I read through, I was reading Ferguson's book at one point and he, he brought up an incident at his training session You know, as he, he struggled through the late nineties. And he mentioned that one of his, I guess mentors had said, then listen, you need to take a step back and allow the coaches to run the practice and you watch and then, you know, and observe what's happening and you'll get a better feel for it. So, you know, during my times as a head coach, that's something I think it was my second or third year where I where I find it hard, but I definitely took a step back because I wanted to focus more on the performance rather than the session running smoothly. So that was definitely uh, that was definitely a challenge for me. And then again, within that role, you spend more time maybe managing players and and managing situations um, than you would actually working on. You know some of the the practice sessions and the topics that you really want to dive into, and then now as a uh, you know an analyst, it, it's definitely I think the the analytical side is something I enjoyed and something I would spend hours doing. So you know I, I think this is quite enjoyable because it's in the background and you know you're not you're not really out there at the forefront. You're not you're not dealing with the pressures of the wins and losses. You're really just sitting down and and really doing what you love, which is trying to understand how people. And how teams and how different cultures are are trying to impose their way to win a game. So, you know, I, I think each segment of my career so far has helped the next level. You know, so even as I sit here, I understand I have a, hopefully a better understanding from my own experiences of what a head coach wants when they receive a when they receive a scouting report. You know, and and how to really. How did that report could be relayed and simplified to ensure that the players can understand it, that the coaching staff fully understand it, and and hopefully can put it into their game plan, and and ultimately have a successful outcome.
0: Uh, what I want to do, Cal, I want to I want to pick your brains a little bit, mate, because I suppose for for those of people that that, that don't know what does it what does your current role uh, so obviously you're working with Huddersfield at the moment um what does it what does a normal day look like whether you know whether that's uh, in in training or, or t- tomorrow obviously you've got a game uh, one thing that stood out for me is there's there's never any downtime so for the, the benefits of the listeners give us a, a bit of a flavour i suppose is what does the role entail and, and what does a kind of average day and week look like in your role so um
1: the average week is oh, i wouldn't really say there's an average day uh, um, there's always, uh, there's never a dull moment, which is probably why I enjoy working in the environment. There's always a challenge and and something popping up. Um, but the schedule is always based around where the games are. So there's obviously the Saturday, Saturday week. Sometimes you might get a Saturday, Sunday, Saturday, Monday. They're a little bit more unusual. Um, and then you'll get the midweek, <clears throat> excuse me, the midweek games. So then everything's worked back from there in terms of what we'll do in training So if you have a full week, every team will have their schedule where they'll have certain days off. If it's Saturday, Saturday, they'll work hard on certain days and they'll work easier on other days. Some days will be more tactical. Other days will be more physical. And every coach and every practitioner has their own thought process on what's best. Thursday's off best. Wednesday's off best. Monday's off best. There's probably no right and wrong. And there's probably good theory behind all of them. But you kind of just got to fit in with with what the head coach really wants and then adjust accordingly. So if you know the head coach wants X day off, you're going to have to readjust which day's your most physical day. So normally physical days are kind of more to the start of the week to allow players to recover and freshen up. So we'll get in uh, early doors. We'll have a, a meeting in terms of just the performance staff and we'll go through uh, the plan of the day, who's doing what. Um, if anything's cropped up, the day before it might be one of the players had said to me or one of the others, oh, you know, actually, you know, my groin's a bit tight or, <clears throat> you know, they might just talk talk to you about maybe an issue at home or they're not sleeping or, you know, maybe they've just had a newborn and the newborn's sick and they're not sleeping. So these are all factors that we would take into account because ultimately they still have to physically perform and any of the external stresses will affect how they deal with that. So as much as you can say, oh, well, get over it. you got training today. If you've not really slept the night before because your child's been sick, how you react to that training stimulus is going to be different than someone that had 10 hours sleep the night before. Um, so we've got to kind of consider all these things. So, okay, this is the training. Who does what of the training do they do? The first bit, the middle bit, all of it. Um, do some players need to do a little bit extra afterwards? Um so that'll be the medical meeting. From that point, then um, the head of our department will go in with the coaching staff and they'll kind of go through um, the in-detail um, transitions of the session and then <clears throat> players come in and then they start to do what we call samples and subjectives. So they'll ask answer some questions on how they are. So that gives us a little bit of information on how they are and kind of opens a opens a can for us so we can kind of say oh you know you didn't sleep well last night no I didn't and it allows you that time to kind of probe them um and then they'll come in and we'll have what we call pre-activation so just some time where that we kind of physically prep them before they even start the warm-up so each day has its own theme depending on what they're doing on the pitch then they'll do their warm-up then they'll do the session then they'll do the recovery um and then they'll um have lunch and then depending on your coach sometimes they might have meetings before or after lunch sometimes it might be a second session um and then in the afternoon that's when you kind of catch up with all your kind of planning and preparation so that would be a normal sort of training day um for example we we trained today uh traveled down to brighton uh got the hotel about sort of seven o'clock uh had our dinner then the players will relax in their rooms Uh, Then we'll have a staff meeting tonight and then uh, we'll be up early and supporting breakfast to make sure obviously the players are okay at breakfast. And then it'll be straight down the stadium, getting everything set up sort of uh, drinks-wise, supplementation-wise, physio-wise, kit-wise, so that when the players turn up, they have nothing to think about apart from uh, going out and playing. And then as soon as they finish, We'll have recovery protocols, uh, make sure they eat, and then we'll get back uh, maybe 10, tomorrow night. So um, you're never doing one thing for too long, but there's lots of things to do throughout each day, if that makes sense.
0: No, no, it does completely. And one thing that, that kind of stood out to me there as you were talking, I suppose, and you know, as, a, as an outsider looking in, as you both know, I'm a, a fanatical Liverpool fan. And, and one thing that I hear Jürgen Klopp talk about a lot is obviously the, the intensity with which Liverpool play, but then the difficulty that he has. Let's say, for example, when you have an FA Cup game, you have a, a league game, you then have quick turnarounds for Champions League games. And I, su- I suppose, Call and, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, you know, that must really uh, be difficult to manage in terms of that recovery pro- process for individual players, particularly when you start to layer on all of the external factors that you've just mentioned. So there's a lot of plates that are spinning at any given one time when the games are coming
1: thick and fast. Yeah, of course. And, and there's other factors to consider as well that, that sometimes people won't won't really think about. They won't think about travel. So, so, for example, if you take Liverpool as a prime example, you know, they might play late into the night. So they might kick off in Spain at eight o'clock UK time, which is nine o'clock their time. So by the time they even get to the airport, it's midnight, one o'clock, then they've got to fly home. And then, cause there's a game in two, three days and they'll have to be in the next day. So <clears throat> they're not really getting to bed. They players struggle to sleep after evening games anyway, because of the adrenaline. Um, then there's the emotion of the actual game itself. So for example, um, Liverpool, Everton, Liverpool, Manchester United, there'll be a much bigger sort of mental drain on them than if it was a sort of easy home game for them, as it were. Excuse me. And then going on from that as well, you've then got the emotional factors of did they play well? Did they play badly? Um, You know, were they dropped? You know, have have they just been thrust back into the team after being out for a few weeks? So there's all these factors to consider when, when recovery and when training. Um, It's not necessarily the recovery. That's always the issue. It's the training just because, I think sometimes in fitness, we kind of get carried away like, oh, no, no, he has to do a second day recovery. It's like, well, okay, but we play again in two days. So the coach really kind of wants to put his ideas across onto the pitch for that upcoming weekend. So when's he going to get time to do it? So there's always that kind of trade off. Um so I, Your focus is trying to get people onto the training pitch basically to be able to, to take on those ideas. Yeah, of course. And, and that's a tricky thing is because realistically in the perfect world scenario, um, you probably shouldn't do anything within kind of two days post game. But this is where the coaches, they might take uh, more video meetings. Uh, they might go just a walkthrough as opposed to a playthrough. Um, these kind of things where they're still trying to get their ideas across, but just reduce the intensity of which they do it at just because... There's so many games, and for the Man Cities, the Chelsea's, the Liverpool's of this world, you know, there's never a game that far away. Really, it,
0: it's interesting. I I heard, and when I knew you were you were coming on the podcast, Cal, I, I obviously did a little bit bit of research, and, and 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 one thing that I found which really surprised me. I listened to an interview. I think it was uh, Rory Smith from the Times. He uh, spoke about um uh, Gundawan from Man City and how he has he surrounds himself with his own medical staff and a lot of players now can um you know if they get injured or they have a long term injury they can go away and and they nearly have a team of their own medical professionals that are kind of centered around them and um, i'll come to you on this one Christy you know when it when it uh, you know, when, when it comes to something like that, you know, that must cause a lot of, of issues for the modern day coach now that players are nearly employing uh, or surrounding themselves with their own medical professionals uh, when there's, you know, there's there's medical professionals at the club that they play for. And, and perhaps that creates some type of friction for the coach and the medical staff in hand.
2: Absolutely. And, um, you know, it's, it's funny. Within the, uh, the league, the pro league that I was in, uh, some of the, the best players who were, um, they're contracted to the national team and the national team will pay their wages. And so when you, you're dealing with some of those players and they've, they've picked up injuries, uh, it can be very difficult to try and get the communication lines right. So where I'm at, I've got our club doctor, we have our whole medical staff, then we've got the international staff. And I'm the middle person, and I'm, I'm relaying conversations between the two of them without having the depth of knowledge that they actually have. So the international staff will be saying, Player X is not available to play. Meanwhile, the medical staff and my club are saying, well, we've been monitoring her now for a week, two weeks, three weeks, and we're satisfied with her. Um, and then you get the player in the middle who's saying, well, I, I need to play because if I don't play for a club, then I'm not getting called back into the country. So it definitely can cause... Um, a little bit of animosity and, and certainly can lead to a miscommunication. So, I think the, the key part, and it's funny, I was literally just having a conversation no more than 45 minutes ago um, about it, which is everybody's got different objectives. Um, and ultimately, the, the main thing is for me and, and my position was to ensure that I get the player to um, take care of the player's needs as the number one priority not the needs of the club is number one priority and certainly not the needs of the national team is number one priority. It was, is this player fit enough and am I jeopardizing the player's long-term health if I do play or if I do allow her to train or vice versa? You know, so we had an incident going back to the, to uh, 2016 with the Olympic year. Um, and w- a player of ours that was um, had a real severe injury, an injury that was, you know, career-threatening. Um, and the national team that she played for did not want to release her to come back and, and and actually go through her rehab with us. Whereas the player felt strongly about coming to us and we felt strongly about having her in our environment um, where we could be hands on and see her on a daily basis. And we were also very confident that our me- medical team was potentially a l- little bit more advanced. Long story short, we eventually win that battle. We get her here. Our medical team sees the, uh, the hardware that this player has inserted by their injury and demands that it's immediately removed previous to that conversation. If that had not happened, the player may have been out for another six to eight months with the injury, you know, so to try and navigate those waters and, and trying to get our medical staff on the same page as the, the international uh, teams, medical staff, it, it caused a lot of stress. It caused a lot of issues. Eventually we, we, they'd all come together and the players' health was became priority and, uh, you know, it, it was a successful outcome. But I could see that being a real issue and I can only imagine that, um, you know, I'm sure Calum deals with it, to, you know, I, along with many other um, staffs at different clubs in the Premier League, particularly with the high-profile players, you know. They've got the resources, they've got the financial uh, ability to support themselves when they're away from the club. So, I could definitely see that caused a few hiccups along the way.
0: What, what, what I want to do, that's kind of led me nicely into a couple of the other topical conversations because I know um, we're a little bit short on time and, and, and I want to try and touch on a couple of topical things that have happened over the last couple of weeks and and, and pick your brains and and get your thoughts. And, and, and one that... You know, I think we'd be remiss not to, to, to mention is uh, the the issue with Richie uh, Sarri uh, and the Chelsea goalkeeper Kepa, who uh, the, the the other week, um, actually refused to to come off in the the final, and it caused quite the um, you know, quite the news headlines, and rightly so. My thought first thought when I saw it was it, it was. Uh, shocking um in any walk of life you know your manager tells you to do something you just do it you get your head down you get it done you might want to go home and and gripe to your missus or your friends you know later that evening but ultimately they pay your wage that you you know they tell you um you know what they want you to do how they want you to do it and and you get it done um so so i'll stay with you on this one christy you know from a football sense you know, when you've seen, seen that happen, you know, it got me thinking, Do you know, do players now, do they have too much power in the dressing room? Um, you know, in an instance like that, when you're looking at Sarri, I nearly felt sorry for him in a way because, you know, how is he able to, uh, you know, how is he able to assert his, his power in that situation? And particularly, you know, in, a, in an environment in and in a culture where... Players are becoming ever more powerful. Um, you know, how are you able to to instil that sense of authority within a, a modern day dressing room?
2: You know, I'm sure everybody's seen at this point what happened with between Sari and Kepa. And my own personal opinion is I, th- I think it was absolutely disgraceful, um, and it's something that. Should, needed to be addressed immediately and you you know you can look around and you can there's many people within that situation that were culpable of, of things that they probably could have done better you know you could look at Azpilicueta as the captain of the team he did he, he probably should have stepped up and backed his coach there and then I saw David Louise went over and tried to speak to Kepa and we'll never know what the actual conversation was there but I think you know first and foremost that that situation for me has probably been brewing, you know, specifically at Chelsea for quite some time. When you have an owner like Abramovich that that maybe you know, from the outside looking in, it gives the impression that you know they, they he doesn't particularly value um, his coaches very highly, and you know maybe that's something resonates right down through the the club. Eventually, you know, trickles all the way down. You know, he show he's shown that. He's very happy to, to chop a coach, uh, you know, on the back of any type of per performances. So maybe that's something that needs to start at the top, you know. So in my own experience is when I when I took on the head position at the at Sky Blue, it was changing the culture and, and trying to establish a positive culture was something that I thought was key, you know. So I was definitely in in a changing room where we had. Um, we had World Cup winners, we had Olympic winners, we had potentially, you know, arguably at this very moment in time, and at that time, the best forward in the world, maybe best player in the world. So, you know, and I and I was the youngest uh, coach in the league at the time, you know, so I had to be careful about what I'd set out to achieve. And, and for me, you know, you're really trying to, to set a culture where we're all working together. We're all in this together, you know, you're looking for dependence on each other and ultimately it, the question isn't really how well each individual can perform, but it's how we can all work well together. Um, so when I go into that position or when a, another coach goes in there, there, there's so many different actions and behaviors that the players will be looking at that will help them kind of follow your lead. You know, if, if if I'm asking you to do something that I wouldn't particularly do myself, then they're going to look at me and they're going to raise eyebrows if I am willing to stand up front of them and kind of set the direction that we want to go, but along that way, help them feel that they're 100% involved in this process. If I'm if I'm willing and confident enough to show and accept my errors along the way and problem solve them and involve them in that uh, process, again, that's increasing their value and it's increasing um, the togetherness of the entire unit. So, you know, maybe if you look back at the, the uh, Kepesari incident, there, there's so many things, there's so many different scenarios that we don't know, but it would definitely seem that maybe not all the players at Chelsea are bought in, um, and that's all good and well. Uh, but I always find that you find out a lot more about people, individuals, and players when you face adversity. I always say when your balls are against the wall, your true colors come out. So I think it's key that you know you, you really try to um, set good values early on so when we do face that adversity and we do face issues that maybe some of your core values such as togetherness dependence on one another um you know honesty openness good communication maybe that's something that'll help solve that issue and we didn't know of any of these problems at the start of the season at chelsea because things were going well it was easy to be bought in when you're being successful but you want that you want that buy-in when you're facing adversity and And that's where things start crumbling and maybe that's what they're facing at Chelsea. So, you know, I think when you're dealing with such big egos uh, and and so many high profile successful players, you, you definitely have to navigate the waters carefully, but you want their trust and they need your trust, but you also need their respect.
0: Well, I think Cal kind of touched on something before, and I think it lends itself to the situation that Sarri's found himself in—is being able to to articulate his ideas. He's, you know, he's got a very specific style of, of playing, and um, you know, and he, he obviously faces some language barriers as well. And Cal touched on it before, I suppose, in terms of, um, you know, he's now, you know, since working in the Premier League and, and obviously he spent time time abroad, work, work working in Brazil. You know, he's had to find a way to articulate his ideas and work around and adapt to the different cultures and the. Different languages that uh, that he faces. So I suppose off, off the back of that, then Cal, you know, you one thing I, I've been saying to, to Christy is is obviously my, my son now is, is playing a lot of football, and um, and I've been trying to uh, you know help him uh, on on his path to, to to play in the game and learn in the game and try and give him little tips where I can. And one thing that I've found is when trying to articulate something to to, to kids, you have to simplify everything and. I have to describe it in a way that I'd never thought about the game before. So, I suppose from a, a coaching perspective, you know, what tips would you give, having worked on, you know, whether it's international football, you've worked, uh, you know, you've worked in different countries now, and obviously on a daily basis, you're working with with individuals with different backgrounds, different languages, different cultures. You know, what tips would you give, you know, in terms of being able to articulate your ideas to to players and and ultimately allow them to then go and put those ideas into practice? Yeah, I
1: mean, I think the first thing was was one of my key experiences was when I was working at Liverpool Academy was working with those those young players and if you can explain it to a six seven eight year old you can pretty much explain it to anyone um, and I think the, the key thing with footballers and not just footballers but more kind of millennial generation people they want to know why why are they doing it what's the benefit um, they also expect to see results straight away because um, that's what we've grown up in. It's funny you say that, actually, mate, because I remember when
0: I spoke to Christy on a podcast before, he nearly encourages his players to ask questions and not just take it as you do this and that's the way it is. He wants them to challenge because if they challenge, they then get a deeper understanding of the game or they are seeking a deeper
1: understanding of the game, if yeah, that for makes sure. sense. And, and if they don't have that, as soon as they walk out the door, they're not going to do it. So, you know, if they have a deeper understanding of why they're doing certain things that okay, if they have a day off and they're feeling tired, okay, they might go and do eat certain foods. They might go, actually, I need to make sure I do this, this, and this is type of recovery today. Cause I know it's going to help me. Whereas if they just do stuff, cause you tell them to do it equally, if they have two days off, they're not going to, and they feel tired, they're not going to do anything because they don't understand why. Um, I think the key part is as well, you've got to understand what kind of stimulates certain people. So each, every character is different. And, It's one of those situations that when you go into it, for example, we've got 13 nationalities in our dressing room and some some of their English is fantastic. Some of their English is good, but sometimes it's quite easy for us as English speakers to kind of just be like, to say something and just expect that they'll understand it because it's part of our common language. And when you work abroad, you kind of learn that a lot of the stuff we say doesn't make sense, but but it will make sense to us three sat here. Do do you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 completely. And they might understand everything, but you've maybe used a word that's to put the point across. So the whole sentence they might understand, but the one key word they might not understand, you have to get right to the crux of, right, that's the word they don't understand. What's the simplest form of that word? Any sense, you know, so you've got to go, right, that's the difficult word they don't understand, right? What's the simplest word that they'll understand? Because equally, sometimes English might not even be their second language. It might be their third or fourth. You know, we've got one player that's got sort of five, six languages in the locker. I don't know. His English is phenomenal. I don't know whether English is his second or his sixth. So, you know, you've got to get to a point where you think he understands everything, but then there might just be one key word, which is the key word of the whole sentence that he's not understood. So you've then got to kind of scale it right back to make sure he understands it to then get the outcome that you want.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that's one thing that, that that I'm finding at the moment, particularly with uh, with my son. And you know, I've found it so rewarding to see. You know, when you put a simple idea across. So we're focusing with the kids at the moment. Uh, you know, on on passing and moving and, and creating triangles and and creating space and. You know, it seems the simplest of ideas. You know, holding your position, uh, passing the ball, moving into a into a space where you can then receive the ball. But then, when you actually see them, uh, you know, put this into practice, and you can see their faces light up when you say to them, "Look, this is what we've been working on, and this is why we've uh, we've been working on it." Uh, you know, that's so rewarding uh, for me, and, and from your side, Christy, when you see that, then in. Uh, you know, from an adult's perspective, you know, you've been trying to implement your ideas over a sustained period of time, um, you know, to seasoned veterans. When they then start to take on your own ideas, your own philosophies, and then improve uh, as a result of that, that must
2: be massively rewarding. I think it's definitely very rewarding. And, and ultimately, I'm sure Kial will vouch for it. And you've said, you've just touched on it. That's really the the, the best thing about being in a, a position such as coaching, well, it could be just as a teacher in the classroom or like coaching on the field, regardless of the sport, or, you know, regardless of what your capacity, if you've got the ability to influence someone and they're able to take that and positively improve, then, you know, it, it, that's very rewarding to see. And, and the try and ensure that you get there, you know, I think it's building that trust between yourself and the player um, or the team, depending upon what you're you're trying to pass on. You know, and, and that... That means opening up yourself to hearing their side and and letting them see that you're not above them, that you're not someone that's saying, this and it's my way or the highway, it's, I know the only way to do this. It's it's trying to have that very holistic approach to to things that um, it, it it makes you a little bit more open to the players and the players are probably then become a little bit more receptive to the message that you're passing on and, and whether that you know, like we said, whether that's your own son, learn how to receive and open up and play the ball out a little bit quicker or whether it's a, a world-class forward, maybe yeah. adding a little bit to their, their repertoire in terms of their finishing. It's, it's certainly rewarding to watch. Um, and it's it's something as a coach that if you don't know the answers, I personally enjoy the challenge of going away, trying to figure out how I can get those answers and how I can find that extra you know, percent, 5% to improve a player's game.
0: it's a nice segue when we're talking about the development of youth players. And and, and I seen an article in uh, the Guardian this week, and, you know, it was very much centered around, uh, the influx of, of British players moving abroad to try and secure first team football. So the likes of Jaden Sancho, um, you know, is, is, is having huge success at, at Dortmund. Um, and, you know, when they were, they were discussing the idea of how to get more young players into the, the top Premier League sides. Um, and one thing that was mentioned was, uh, you know, the, the idea of, let's say, the reserve teams of these uh, the, the top Premier League sides potentially dropping down into the lower leagues in order to get some competitive football. Because I think one thing that's labelled at, that, uh, you know, the youth teams, the 21s, the 23s, um, you know, it's, it's not overly competitive. Um, you don't necessarily get that true... Uh, taste of competitive first team football and if you were to create an environment like I think they've used in Spain where you know the reserve teams the B teams of the top sides drop down into the lower leagues they're able to get that competitive football and um, what would be your thoughts on that Christy do you think that that's something that that could work and I suppose you know when you look at the the, the pathways of, of young players going into these top sides you know how are these top sides meant to create an environment where they're able to return uh, you know retain their young players
2: if they're not able to to guarantee them first team football it's a difficult one definitely and it, it probably varies from country to country um really based upon what the the rules are within the leagues you know so i i definitely think that if you know liverpool arsenal um and all the other teams within the league had the capability to produce a b team and Reserve team, whatever terminology you you know you want to tie that, and they're able to put them in a lower league, but they're still able to um, pass on their their playing style, the, the similar coaching philosophies, the same messages to these players to ensure there's you know consistency in their development. Then I, I definitely think it would work. But then on the flip side, it it really depends ultimately what you're looking to do. Are we looking to develop the players to the opposite of their potential? or Are we looking for clubs just to be able to retain players? If we're looking to develop players to the highest of their potential someone like jordan sancho is a great case study um the kid at arsenal uh reese nelson or you know i can't remember his name off the top of my head right now unfortunately but he's over in he's over in germany right now and he's learning from a different perspective he's learning within a different culture a new way of doing things that ultimately is is making him a little bit uncomfortable i'm sure but also in aid in his development. So, from that standpoint, feeding players out into different countries, into leagues that are appropriate, into cultures that are you know, promoting their development, then there, there's certainly an upside to that. But if we're going to look directly at retaining players and and keeping them within a system, a, a within a club system, you know, we're, we're maybe looking a little bit more financial at that point. Then I, I would see an upside as well to allowing these teams to team, putting their you know the reserve team b team under 23s whatever you want to tag to that into maybe league two but where do you cut it off do do we say right they can only get into the championship they're not allowed to play in the Premier league because i'm not exactly sure how they do that in spain but you know it, it's definitely important the the main thing within it whether you know you're looking to retain so you you're not having to buy these players later in life or you're you're wanting to develop them. I think the main thing is that these players are getting game experience. They're they're put into the right environment that is to promote their development. That is to promote playing in a competitive situation that allows them to gain game experience that they otherwise wouldn't get. You know, so you know we can talk, and I'm sure Calum's been exposed to it, to the highest level. You know, and training Monday to Friday is fantastic, but nothing replicates. Saturday afternoon game environment. Whether that's the adrenaline, whether that's different tactics, higher level players. So these the younger players need to be exposed to that. They need to be given the opportunity. Want to fail within that, but learn from those mistakes, learn from those downfalls, and, and ultimately progress. Do you not
0: think though that you know? I, I always look at it and think that when you know, there's so much pressure now on on the modern day manager. You know, there's been such an increase of of money in football. You know, it doesn't take two bad results before the pressure now is is ultimately starting to pile on new managers before they've even had a chance to, you know, put their feet under the table. So, do you think that that that's one of the challenges that these new managers are less likely to to risk if you want a young player um, and afford them the time to make those mistakes in a first team environment uh, versus you know bringing in an experienced older player with less of a less of a ceiling, if you will, because they pose less risk and ultimately it's it's nearly a case of uh, damage limitation or job protection for them in that they don't want things or they can't afford for things to go wrong. So they plug a gap rather than bring in a
2: young player who you know, could go on to flourish. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's, it's a, that's probably one of the number one reasons. I mean, you, you've seen how cutthroat it is. You, you just have to look at Claudio Ranieri. He got, I think, 16 games at Fulham. And I believe that they let him go today or yesterday because they were afraid that his training styles were outdated, but yet he'd won the Premier League two years ago and they only appointed him 15 games ago. That his training style... Become- See,
0: that, that, seems, that seems crazy to me that they could bring somebody in and after uh, however many weeks they then decide that his training methods are outdated. Surely to make that type of decision, they would have done their due diligence to know this is how he trains. This is what message he's trying to get across. This is the way he will want us to play. Surely when he went for interview, they would have asked those
2: type of questions. So that for me seems crazy from the yeah, club. I think it's a little bit of a cop-out, but it, regardless of, of that, it, it kind of paints the picture of just how cutthroat the league is, you know? So I don't think they're our film looking at bringing a, a manager that's going to try and save them at the last minute to get them out of there. I would, I personally would, would have kept someone like Renyari in there, but it, it, it goes to tell the tale of the pressure that these uh, these coaches are under. I mean, it's a thankless task at times, other than the, how deep the pockets become. But when you relate that back to the opportunity for young players, if we go back to you know the class of ninety two, which um, which Fergie was able to bring through, and the line that he came up with, I, I am a true believer on, which is if you're you're good enough, you're old enough. Um, but I think there's a there, that has to be brought with a, a bit more depth. We can talk about technical ability, tactical understanding, etc., but do these players the young age, 17, 18, have the competitive mentality? Do they have the maturity to play in front of 60,000 people? And do they have the mentality to perform under pressure when there's a level expectation? We don't always know that, but now with the amount of pressure that every single coach is facing, why would they risk their job in the hope that a 17-year-old could get up and perform. So you look at someone, um, Hudson-Odoi, that plays with Chelsea, it it seems that he's certainly got plenty of talent up his sleeve. Um, But someone like sorry, he's looking at it and saying, well, right now I'm going to lean on Pedro. I'm going to lean on Pedro. I'll lean on William, who are proven international players, who have done it at the highest level, because it's it's a safer bet for them. But then the knock on effect is that, I think, during December, during the transfer window, Hudson-Odoi said, Well, you got to let me go because I know at some point that I can play professional football at the top level and I need to get that game experience. So it's definitely a challenge for these managers and it's definitely a challenge for the clubs. And it's something that, you know, Gar Southgate right now at the highest level looking down. He needs to see where his future, you know, crop of players are coming through because that pathway right now is very gray for me. Yeah,
0: it's certainly a challenge. And you you look at the likes of of Manchester City, you know, they've got an absolute gem in in, in Phil Foden. And there's absolutely no guarantee, despite how many times that that Guardiola will come out and speak in glowing terms, in terms of how much he rates the player. You know the proofs in the pudding. He's not getting minutes. You know he gets the odd minutes in the uh, you know in the Carling Cup or the Carabao Cup, whatever it's called. Now, you know he, um, you know he gets a little bit of minutes. But as a, an ambitious player, you know Phil Foden must be looking at his mate Jaden Sancho and, and, and seeing him, you know, scoring bag full of goals, playing in the Champions League, uh, you know, becoming a, a local hero to to the Brussels Dortmund fans, and be thinking that the grass is greener on the other side
2: absolutely it's it's a challenge and so you look at full food and you say why would he stay there right now and and there's some answers that we don't know and there's there's information that he has that we're not privy to but if i'm sitting in his shoes i'm looking at bernardo silva i'm looking at davis silva i'm looking at fernaldino i'm looking at De Bruyne. they're all ahead of me right away and granted his up his his ceiling may be higher we we don't know that and we'll not know for a long time but we also know that man city have a you know very deep pockets and they as soon as fernandinho's days are coming to an end and as soon as bernardo uh, sorry david silva's days are you know best edge behind him they're not they're unlikely to drop um Foden in there at the deep end they're probably going to go out and spend 50 60 million on a proven international player so at which point does he become a consistent player in that team does he does he have to bide his time and wait till he's 25 26 and use these four minutes at the end of a game these 10 minute appearances when they're already winning four or five no does he use that and and really hang on there and hope that he can he can become a mainstay in the team at some point in time or does he say you know what i could probably go to somewhere like everton and and go there and potentially start and by the end of the season i might have 30 games under my belt and be all that bit wiser and that bit smarter and, and become a very savvy, experienced player by the time he's 22, 23. And, and you know, so th- there's definitely questions within that. Then I, I personally would be a fan of, if you know, there's, there's certain, speaking specifically about Arsenal, there's players at Arsenal that need to be allowed to be loaned out. They need to be farmed out, put in an environment where they're challenged, where they face adversity, where they, they might actually be the main player on the team and allow them to step up, allow them to take that pressure, develop that side of the game. Because most of these players we're looking at, they're not struggling technically. It, it, their development's a the key part. We now need to look at the, the mental side of the game, is can they um, can they perform on a regular basis? And you'll not like this, but a friend of mine, diehard Man United supporter, he, he played with them when he was younger, and he always said,
0: Oh, here we go. Where
2: are we, where are we going with this? The Liverpool supporters might not know a lot about this, but pressure, right? So an expectation, but however, I'm all joking <laughs> to say. That, you know, we, we would talk actually about... Naturally done. <laughs> <laughs> we would talk about certain players that have come into Man United um, and have been a success within the Premier League. Because you always talk about being a proven talent in the Premier League, you know, it's a safe bet. But these players would come, and I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head, which I'm not able to grab at, you might, but who've come to Man United and they've failed. And the thing that he would always say is it's it's very easy to play for a team when you're only expected to perform once every four or five games. But see when there's an expectation for you to perform day in, day out at the highest level under the microscope like clubs like Manchester know, like clubs like Liverpool or like Arsenal right now. But when, when you're expected to do that, that does a lot to your psyche and it, it challenges these players and it can break players. So knowing that what can, what can be done to help these players experience those situations at a younger age, I'm, you know, at the age of 18, 19, 20, rather than them sitting on the bench, well, on full food and looking at, sitting on the bench, watching Aguero win the game from watching the Brown step up and win the game and grabbing a game by a neck, and then coming on when it's over? And and people label in four minutes as valuable experience when they're winning 4 0. Uh, that 4-0 is not a valuable experience for me you know so i think there's a better way to do it i'm not 100 sure of what is the best way but it, you know i think players definitely young british players are definitely suffering at this moment in time see
0: you, you make a good point there right and, and we're talking about youngsters now so the you know when, when you look at big clubs and you spoke specifically there about the expectation that comes with playing at a big club and how you know, you can't have you know one bad game in three. It's just not allowed at big clubs. You have to perform every minute of every game. So, if you look at let's say a, a season pro, and I'll use Liverpool as an example because obviously it'd be more uh, more familiar with the Liverpool players. Look at the likes of uh, a Fabinho, mm-hmm. or look at the likes of uh, a Nabi Kater, who both came with. Um, very impressive CVs. Have been performing to a very high level, not only domestically but also in the Champions League. Um, and you look at them that have come to a to a big club like Liverpool, trying to to take on board the ideas of a very specific manager in Jurgen Klopp and the weight of expectation that comes with with playing for a big club. Now, I'd argue, maybe people would argue with me that. Naby Keita probably still hasn't shown his his best form at Liverpool. He's been here a season now. He's he's been very much in and out of the side. He, in the I'd say the, I'd argue the last couple of months, he's he's really started to come to the to the fore a little bit, but still isn't getting that consistency in games, and certainly isn't influencing the games as much as as his talent would have suggested. And then if you look at Fabinho, you know he's come in and let's let's be honest last couple last couple of months he's been an absolute rolls royce but it still took him time to adapt to play in a very specific way playing in a very high intensity uh, you know a very high intensity league you know so these are seasoned pros yeah how are young players that have been playing under 21s under 23s you know what type of uh, bedding in time, are they going to be afforded? They're realistically never going to get that fair shot. Um, if players like a and Naby Keita are still struggling, what chance do the young lads have?
2: Absolutely. I mean, uh, there's there's so many ways you can look at that as well. And first and foremost, you're you know you're talking Naby Keita and you're talking um, exactly, and you're talking about Fabinho, right? So there's two players that Liverpool have brought in this summer. Now Liverpool's got a youth academy to be very proud of and they've produced numerous players. But they're they're quicker to bring in those players rather than rather than promote promote something through the youth academy. So right away there's there's a challenge in that for the these player these young players trying to make their way in the first team. So, you know, I'd be a bit firm believer that like I said, if you're good enough, you're old enough.
0: Now I, I would not be being myself if I didn't have you on a podcast and we didn't talk about the title race. So we're going from Phil Foden, we're going to Manchester City, and we're going to Liverpool, and we're going to go all in on who is going to win this title race. Because I'll be honest, mate, you, you're talking. I about have tried to re- fourth in the league, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly what I'm about. talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I have to be honest. I've tried to remain calm. <laughs> I've just tried to be breezy. Uh, you know, people have been sending me stats, facts, figures, um, you know, uh, historical reasons why Liverpool are going to win the league. You know, who's going to win the league,
2: mate? May I tell you what? If I could give you that answer, it'd be worth a lot more than um, the ten dollars in my pocket. I would. It's definitely edging towards Liverpool, um, and I would fancy Liverpool. But, really? You know, I, I, yeah, I tell you, it's a tough one, you know. And here, here's for me. And I, I've seen it said before, but I, I definitely believe it is. You know, strikers, goal scorers will win games, but defenders will win leagues. You know, so. You've, you've got your Rolls-Royce. He's cruising around back there. He, even when you put him, um, even when you put different players next to him, Virgil van Dyke has definitely stepped up. Andy Robertson's looking looking fantastic. Big fan of his. And, and Henderson stepped up here and then and, and kind of held the midfield in front of them together. Whoa, 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 Christy. Let's just go back to that point there a little bit. What did, what did you say about Henderson there? Henderson, he's, uh, he's not a bad player, is he? Now, I've, in fairness, you, <laughs> you and I talked him when you were playing, it was it Bayern? And I thought he, he, he ran the midfield. And there's certain things that Henderson's good at and there's certain things he's not good at. But call it what it is, Henderson's got the right mentality to hold the midfield together when they're under pressure, to break up opposition, uh, and really just release the pressure from the backboard. But here's here's the interesting part for me, um, when you when you do have someone like Virgil van Dijk and you do have uh, Robertson and and uh, Trent Alexander Arnold when he's in there and whoever else will partner well, or it's Maddock or it's it's Lovren, and you have Alisson back there. But I don't want to hear that the you know there's there's no expectation for Liverpool to win the league. There is an expectation for Liverpool to win the league, because it was made very clear that. Um, you know, the goalkeeper was a it was a problem position, so they went out and bought arguably the best fit for the team. That's great. Prior to that, they went out and bought the best fit for the for the back four, and that was Virgil Van Dijk. So when you when you go out and you're able to put these pieces together, I think there is an expectation that you're competing to win the league. Now, don't get me wrong; there's certainly an expectation for Man City too, but it's good to see you know, Liverpool. I think they had maybe a little bit of a wobble, but it seems that they're steady in it. And you know, you. You've got goal scorers, you've got depth in the midfield, and you you have arguably the best centre-back and maybe best goalkeeper in the league. So I think that should be enough to see them across the line.
0: Let me, let me bring Cal back in. And for those listening, we have just done, if this works, the most seamless segue. Now, so Cal, off the back of what me and Christy are saying there, and he spoke about... There is an expectation now on, on Liverpool, off the back of signing key players like uh, an Allison, like a Virgil Van Dijk. Do you think that expectation is fair, or do you think there is still some way to go before they are are level pegging with the quality that City have?
1: I think when you're, I think <laughs> when when you're when you're top of the table with ten games to go, there's a, uh, there's an expectation. Even when you go back to to Leicester, you know everyone thought they'd fall. But when you start to get, to, I think Alex Ferguson called it squeaky bum time, um, when you're in the mix with eight to ten games to go, there's there's got to be an expectation. And the expectation will be both for Man City and Liverpool because they're both, no one's, no one's pulled away. So they're both expecting the other one to drop or hoping, as it were. So they're both expecting to win and wanting to win. And then it's just purely going to come down to, how they uh how they perform um but I think the expectations in terms of the business Liverpool have done I think has been outstanding this year um and it's really kind of kicked them on and I think maybe there was a a small expectation at the start but I think if you would have told many Liverpool fans you'll be top of the prem by a point with 10 games to go in August you would have snapped the hand off wouldn't you?
0: Oh, without a shadow of a doubt, mate. And I think one where my issue is with this, and don't get me wrong, I think we're in with a great shot. The worry that I have, and my bone of contention, is this warped perception of, um, you know, this bottleless title that keeps getting thrown around. And you're a Spurs fan, Cal. You know, it's thrown at your lads quite a lot as well. This idea that if you drop points, if you draw a game, you're automatically... A bottler. I just, I, I cannot get my head around this. And I feel that it, it's nearly because Manchester City have set such an unfair expectation on what is needed to win this Premier League. Or, you know, uh, of the likes we've never seen before, you know, you've had teams that are winning leagues on, on, on 80 points. you know uh, 80 points before you know so this idea that you've got to get north of 100 points to win a Premier League and you know you can't afford to draw the odd game seems absolutely foreign to me so do you think Cal that that is because of of Manchester City setting an unfair bar and what's your view on on this whole bottlers tag particularly when you look at your boys
1: well you know I I appreciate you putting Tottenham and, and bottling into the same sentence Thanks um, <laughs> for reminding me. No, but but I think it's like anything, you know. As soon as one of these top teams draws a game, I think we've got twenty-four hour media outlets that all of a sudden just oh they've lost it. And then there's the talk shows, talk sport, and we're guilty. We all listen to them. I listen to them more than most, you know. And all of a sudden, you have you lose one game, draw another, right? Title race over. That's never been the case in years, but it's probably just due to the over uh analysis of results and people having to put um information out there and I think the bottling thing I found it really interesting and it was something I'd never really thought about until it was the Tottenham Leicester title race was the timing of the fixtures and I remember Tottenham that year always always in the run running last 10 to 12 games always played after Leicester so Leicester were five points clear Leicester would win, go eight points clear, then Tottenham had to win to keep it within five points. If the fixtures go the other way around, and Tottenham play, bring it back to five points, and then they play on the Saturday before, say Leicester played on the Sunday, all of a sudden then it's they can bring it back to two points. And then Leicester have to win to take it back to five points. It's a different mentality going into the game. It brings it all more pressure. And then, for example, say they drop a point and then Spurs play before them again, that potential eight-point gap has gone to almost one or two points. And that brings a completely different pressure than if you win and then the team have to catch up with you. So, you know, you take Liverpool this weekend on Sunday. If Man City win whenever they're playing, before they play Liverpool, uh, before Liverpool play, then Liverpool have to win to go back to the top of the table. Whereas if Liverpool played Saturday early kickoff and win then Man City have to win to stay in touch
0: yeah it's a, it's a it's a totally it's a totally different mindset and and I think that's where Liverpool this year we've kind of had both sides of the coin you know we've been chasing and I always think it's easier to chase uh, in, in some de- degree particularly as a Liverpool because you don't carry that weight of expectation it's nearly like plucky Liverpool trying to chase down City but then when We were top, and as you said, the fixtures start to come in, and then you can feel Manchester, you know, we've gone from seven points clear at one point to all of a sudden, you know, the gap's been closed down to one. And Liverpool find themselves in a situation where we can't afford to slip up. Whereas when they were second, I'd argue that if we finish second, people would probably say, that's a good season for Liverpool. But the fact that they've been top for so long now, it changes that perception, and it would nearly feel to some like a failure, which for me feels maybe I'm making a rod for my own back and I'm getting the excuses in early, but I just think this Manchester City can field two squads. And Liverpool, I think, I'll probably get some abuse for this online. I think best 11 for best 11. I think Liverpool have a better side. And by better side, I don't mean in talent. I mean in balance. Are you going to let me finish, Christy? Let me finish, right? I'm going somewhere with this, right? So I think we have a better goalkeeper. I think the balance in our back four when our full backs are uh, in full flight in, in Trent and Robinson and uh, when Joe Gomez and, and Van Dijk are together, I think that back four, proven by the fact that we have conceded the least goals, is, is is better than Manchester City's. I think Manchester City have the edge in midfield, clearly. They are absolutely fantastic in there, particularly with Fernandinho. And I think our front three as a balance across the front three is more effective whereas I actually think individually Aguero would, would get into to either side. But, but what I'm trying to say is when Liverpool get one or two injuries, you see that huge dip in quality, whereas Manchester City can field two unbelievable sides. Would you say that's fair, oh, they definitely
2: do have a, a fantastic squad. I mean, there's probably some perils. I'm sure Pep Guardiola, if he got a chance, would sit down and tell you how tough it is to manage, having so much um, talent at, at his disposal. But can't really question... They, they probably do have the, the deepest, most talented squad in the, the league. But, you know, they've faced their own problems this year with Mendy, who, when playing, for me, really seems to change their game. But, uh, unfortunately, he's not seen probably as much um, time as he, he would have liked through different sorts of injuries. But, you know, like, I think the the thing that Cal said, it's very true. At this point in the season, so you're sitting top, there's 100% an expectation. But what I think is is quite interesting is, the people that are saying that Liverpool are bottlers, right, and that they're breaking under pressure, are the same people, you know, potentially saying the same things about Spurs. It's not people who are informed and understand what is happening internally within Liverpool and what's happening within Manchester City. It's people with half a story. So, you know, the part that becomes interesting there is it, when we see that headline, and we know we all know the players say it. It's how do they react to that? Do they have the, the mental capacity to look beyond that and, and trust their, trust themselves and trust the, the process that they're within to, you know, finish off the job? And, and ultimately, over the next uh, 10 games, definitely we'll find that. But for me, as we said, Liverpool, given, you know, that Alisson's there, given the, the form that Virgil van Dijk is in, and, you know, you can you can still trust Salah to pop up with the goals for bino And I think Mane very underrated um is exceptionally dangerous you know you have players that win games and you've got the defenders that'll win leagues so i'm hoping that you can see it out you can edge them out but it's going to (laughs) be squeaky bum time from now till the very very end
0: Thanks for reminding me of that mate I appreciate that <laughs> So I just want to ask you a couple couple of finishing questions Kyle while I've got you on and, and hopefully I'll have you on throughout the throughout the season uh, again but wh- whilst you're with us now I just want to pick your brains outside of your current role um, you spent um, uh, a little bit of time uh, working with the Turkish national side you also worked over in Brazil so I just want to get I suppose your, your experience of those roles because for one I suppose the differences between working in a national team environment versus uh, that of a Club side, and then also give me a give me a flavour of the passion of the Brazilian fans, because I suppose as a as a football fan watching some of the games that you see over there, it looks incredible. So give us and an, an the listeners a bit of a flavour of your time. Um,
1: Brazil was uh, a fascinating experience, um, and interestingly enough, they think the best, most passionate football fans in the world are the British fans. Um, <clears throat> okay. They they don't know where all the songs come from um you know the team sign players and then all of a sudden within a week they've got the whole stadium singing the song um brazilian fans can be quite fickle so for example you've got some of the, the teams in rio that play in an, the 80,000 seat maracanã and if you lose four in a row you will get 4,000 people turn up but then if you win four in a row the place will be packed whereas that's not really something that's in our kind of psyche or culture like oh you know my team's lost four in a row i'm just not gonna go we just can't kind of comprehend that as kind of british football fans um but we had a a section i think you've seen on my instagram was they had the ultras and they just it was just a mosh pit at the end of the ground and it was mental um you you couldn't pay me to go and stand in there it was just i don't know how people survived you know i'm sure there's elbows bruises cuts scrapes uh, that's, that sounds like one night on the dance floor at university,
2: medication, that means. the
1: um, <laughs> But yeah, so that was the interesting part of it. I think the other part is, is, don't forget in Brazil, they have 80 odd games a year. So it's really saturated. So, you know, if you miss one game, there's always one around the corner.
0: 80 games a season? Yeah, That's yeah, incredible
1: because they they have like a regional league, which like get through to the finals, like 20, yeah. 22 games. And then you have like the Premier League, which is 38 games. And then you have... Uh, like the FA Cup then you have like the league cup and then you have like the Europa League which the team that I was working in uh was in or the Libertadores like the Champions League so it's just every week is Saturday Wednesday Saturday Wednesday so you know when everyone says oh you know the uh the championship's the most brutal league in the world it's probably up there but I think Brazil uh takes a biscuit a little bit um it was interesting to see the intensity of the game was poor um the technical ability of the players was ridiculous you know, just what they could do with the ball was was purely street football esque yeah, kind of thing. I, that I type think they've of always mentality. played with the freedom, and it's like okay to like make a mistake or try and take someone on, even if you're one nil up and you're on the halfway line. You know, as opposed to just kick it in the corner and see out the last thirty seconds. Um, you no, know, that's just not in their kind of DNA, as it were. Um, but it was interesting to see the the youth teams. Um, how they develop them they just chuck kids in because it's such a selling league to survive as soon as a european club comes in and wants a player they sell them and then it's like boom 16 17 year old kid in there you go um and this is where you kind of get the the fact of for example we sold a kid um called Altavia who plays for Bordeaux now. And by the time he went to Bordeaux at 22 years old, he would played sort of 250 first team professional games at 22 years old. So, so you're thinking, how's his development come along playing against men for 250 games compared to a player that's kind of been in reserve team football or under 21 football playing against other 18, 19 year olds?
0: It's, it's, it's the polar opposite that we were, whilst you were at the team meeting, we were talking about progression routes and, and, and we were talking about, I suppose, the, 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 lack of into the top sides in, in English football now, which has led to the likes of, of, of Jade and Sancho, uh, you know, trying to, to, to cut their teeth in, in foreign leagues. And, um, you know, and, and, and Christy made the point, you, you cannot, uh, you know, the environments that they play in are, are far too nice. Um, you know, you you can't learn who you are as a player unless you face some adversity. So for those young players in Brazil who, you know, are playing 200, 500, you know, games as as a youngster in front of that many fans with that passion and intensity, you know, that's going to stand to them throughout their careers and, no, of and really. It is. I, mean, I mean,
1: we had a situation. We had a a player that played for Brazil under twenties. He was just one of those rapid, rapid wingers. You know, touch out of his feet and just burnt past people. And we played uh, Palmeiras. And do you remember Zay Roberto played for Leverkusen and Bayern Munich? Uh,
2: what a player. Uh, so yeah. he, he was coming yeah.
1: back. So what tends to happen is in Brazil, there's a big gap in the middle. So you've got all the young prospect players and then all the players that have been to Europe and then come back with no one really in the middle. Um, So this kid, he was 18, 19, rapid as they come, was playing right wing against Zay Roberto at 41. And you're thinking, oh, this is, this is going to be carnage. He's going to tear him apart. Zay Roberto's 41, got no legs. And our winger didn't get a kick of the game because they were both game smart, game, game understanding, you know, he's not going to put himself in certain positions. And um, the wing was kind of like, crap, like what I normally do isn't good enough. So he kind of went away and just was like, Jesus, like, I suppose I need to work on something else here. Whereas if he's that winger and just playing against 18, 19 year old lads all the time that physically can't cope with him, but also haven't got the game understanding to take him out of the game. He's just going to get success after success after success. So then by the time he steps up and plays Premier League against established internationals, he's found wanting.
0: It's interesting you say that, makes that reminds me of a story. I played, uh, so I had a brief spell uh, playing in the, the Welsh Prem. And one of the I turned up in the the hills somewhere, a little quaint stadium in the middle of the hills somewhere, and uh turned up, got, got my gear on, went out for the warm-up. And I had no concept of who played in the Welsh Premier League, what players. And I looked at, looked at their, their players warming up and yeah, Clayton yeah. Blackmore. The man Manchester United kind of legend, if you will. uh was was playing and was playing centre midfield, and obviously I was playing centre midfield, and I was like, okay, this is going to be interesting. So in true uh fashion, I tried to rough him up a little bit early, early on, let him know I'm there, you know that old that old chestnut. And I, he was that smart that I couldn't even foul him because he'd see me coming a mile off and just move out of the way, or you know, it, it, he literally. I tried to get near him. I tried to win headers. I, I just tried to get hold of the ball. And it was nearly like he was four or five steps ahead of me. And he was an old yeah. man and he was so far ahead of my level. It was absolutely incredible. Yeah.
1: And and I think this is it's very easy for us to kind of sit back and say, this play is rubbish. This play is not good. And it's like, you've just got no concept until you see them up close, just how unbelievable they are. You know, so like you say, you can't even get close to them. You know, you, you you want to, you know, even if they're messing about with you or whatever, you're like, oh, I'll just nick it. And they just see you coming a mile off. And not only have they got the, the technical and tactical part, is now they're all pretty much fantastic athletes. So you can't even like push them around or right. Oh, I'm a little bit quicker than him, and I'll nick. No, you've just got no chance. And they just see they see the game differently, and they see it sort of three or four steps ahead of what we see. But that's the thing I can't get my head around because
0: I, I always think about you know players that you've played against. And, and was I right in saying, Christy, did you play a lot against Stephen Davis? Uh, was yeah, I played
2: against
0: him quite uh, a bit. And, and and how was he gro- growing up as 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 because obviously he's gone on to have a fantastic career. But he's
2: captain. Did he captain Northern Ireland as well? I think he is currently still the captain of Northern. Ireland, yeah, he still a, captain. How was he growing up? He was very small, um, but his game sense was fantastic. So the first time I played against him, I thought, and I'd heard all about him, you know, and all this carry-on, I thought, I'm just going to whack him. Can't wait to get there. i going to get me black boots on him.
0: <laughs> you can tell the two dogs of war on this podcast, you know what, you? The, the Great
2: opportunity, right? So I thought i will just level him, and I couldn't get close enough. But funny enough, <laughs> and, the, you know, it's better coming from someone else, but my best opportunity was to be successful was to play against them rather than try and hit him because you, you couldn't. The, these He was head and shoulders. um above me in terms of his game sense and just his general game IQ. So, you and you could tell just in the way he moved, just little subtleties within his game, little touches, little little drop of shoulder just to stay out of a certain, you know, to, to stay away from pressure. It was incredible to watch. And I was fortunate enough, it, it's quite fun, I was fortunate enough to play with and against a couple of different players that um, did, did go on to play at certain levels. I mean, Darren Gibson, who... I don't even know where he's at right now. He Was arguably one of the most gifted players I've ever seen and played a bit with and against. And you know, it didn't work out for him in the Premier League. as maybe it should have at, at different different clubs. I haven't spent a long time United and then Everton. And then you know you get someone like Paddy McCourt, who I don't know if if you know much about him, but he, he spent a long time at Celtic and, and played in the lower divisions. Um,
0: I think he was he was actually at Rochdale for a time. I think he played with one of my best friends. I think they were in the youth set up together. Is that That's
2: the same, same one? Derry Messi, as they call him. So he <laughs> he was a funny one. You know, he was a player that I think he only had one speed. And I played with him in the in the same youth teamism for quite a while. And he had one speed, and it was slow. But he he, just, <laughs> he, he had such an amazing deaf touch about him that. He was able to manipulate the ball past defenders and just sell you the slightest little bit of information and then just glide past. It, it was fascinating to watch. And funnily enough, his brother, his older brother, who played at a higher, high level as well, but not obviously at Celtic, he had the same thing. It was just a way they, their understanding of space, their understanding of how players move and how they can work against that was, it, it, those type of players are special to watch. As I'm sure Callum gets to see on a daily basis, I think sometimes you take it for granted when you watch it on TV because it's, it's a standard that we all expect. But the little subtleties in their game is it, it's tremendous. It's special. Well, there's
0: two things. Well, there's, thing- there's two things I want to pick up on there off the back of that comment. The first is the debate that we had on WhatsApp this morning. We were talking about um, midfielders and, and we were talking about teams of the season. And I mentioned that I'd have Ginny Wynaldum in mind. And uh, one of the reasons that that I'd have him in the team and and spoke about when I'm trying to teach my son little nuggets about the game. Ginny Wijnaldum weirdly is a player that I always use as a reference point for my son in how he is able to move his body in order to create space for himself in a congested midfield without necessarily touching the ball. So, and I think this is an important thing for, for young kids to learn is one is lift your head and build a picture of what's around you before you receive the ball. And then second of all is how can you move your body in order to create space? Um, and this is something that I'm trying to teach my son at the minute, and that sounds like what Paddy had when he was playing, is that ability to create something from nothing and nearly slow
2: the game down to, to their own it was, pace. It was frightening. He used to freeze players with his eyes. I mean, when you get off this, go and just YouTube it and watch it. It, it looks like he's moving in slow motion, but... His he probably spent the majority of his time looking at the opposition's feet, looking at the direction in which they're moving, and finding the hardest position for them to move back into to defend. And it was, it's, it really is very special to watch, and and it's something that's it's garnered over a long time. And you know, one of the things that if if I think back and, and not to go into too deep, since we you know we probably have to go pretty soon, is one of the issues that I feel in America is that you know. Is that
0: a subtle hint? No, no, me, no yeah? not
2: at all. I'm in Portugal. I get to get up here at we'll stay up all night talking football. But one of the things <laughs> I think within the development of youth players in America is that in America, it's always about being on the best team. And in my experiences back home, it wasn't always about being the best team, it was usually about being the best player. And there is, you know, I'll, I'll go back to Patty. Patty was given su- such an opportunity on an average team to be the best player and turn two to, to, win the game, to score the goals, to to step up and shine. Whereas you do if you do that over here, you're taken off because they have what they call as the mercy rule, which is you're not allowed to win a game by more than six goals. So the first thing they do is they sit down their best players. So right away the best players are losing out the opportunity to experiment, to try new things and, and learn new things. So, you know, that's a, it's a conversation for another day. But in terms of someone like Patty, he he spent a long time on the football pitch Playing freely, just showcasing what he could do, trying new things, but failing half the time, you know, falling on his face the other half of the time. But if you can take those failures and you can take the lessons and go back out and make yourself better from it, then ultimately, you know, he's he's the tale of a player that was able to, to go on and have a very successful career like like many other players who had those opportunities.
0: Before I move to Cal to, to get a sense on some of the players that he's worked with, and um, just on the mercy rule, there just just uh, that you just referenced what what's the rationale behind that? Is it are they worried more about the team being defeated, uh, you know, and how it would affect them rather than developing their own players? That ju- that seems like a, take, a mad yeah, concept
2: to me. A bit of criticism on this, but I think one of the big issues over here is that everybody has to win. Everybody has to get a medal at the end of the day, you know. So uh, there's no real separation between working for something and achieving it and being able to sit and play xbox but showing up and and uh getting a medal because you know maybe your parents paid for it um so i think in terms of the mercy rule yet yeah, it's, it's to ensure that the kids aren't felt you know they don't feel defeated at the end of it and i can understand that i'm certainly not saying that that's character building it's though for me build. and the last time you lost Seven, eight, nine, nil. It embarrassed you a little bit. It hurt you a little bit, and it made you hungry to make sure that you didn't find yourself in that situation ever again. So that's one side of it. The other side of it, the people who lose out on that are the best players. The first thing that they do is they they pick out the best three or four players, and they sit down there. Sit down there. Don't you're not you're not allowed to do anything. You're too good for this team. So instead of you maybe playing a different position or maybe try something different. Try and score a goal from outside the eighteen yard box when you're twelve years old, or try and strike it with your left foot on the vault, whatever it might be. Instead of giving them different objectives, the easy answer to avoid the the repercussions of not obeying a, a mercy rule is, you know, it, the easy answer is to sit the player down. So, yeah, it's, I, I think that's, again, that's a, that's a story for another day because, again, you get got a country that's got one of the largest populations in the world, and unfortunately, until recently, they're, they're really struggling to produce players at the, to the highest level. You know, you've got your Pro 6 you've got um, Adams who's playing over there in Germany at the moment, um, and hopefully they can be successful, but time will tell
0: now and i and believe me we will definitely pick that up on on another podcast because I've got lots of theories about uh, you know it, it, basically building character in players and in life but anyway we'll we'll park that one for now because I really want to pick cal's brain before we before we break the podcast um in terms of the the best players obviously Cal, you've got a good good range of experience now in 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 different countries uh whether it's international setups club setups who has stood out for you as as um the best player that you've coached and, and, and maybe the best player that you've played
1: with or against? Um, obviously you would have to be up there in terms of best player played with. Oh, well, thank you, sir. <laughs> I, I will yeah, pay yeah, you up. Um, <laughs> in terms of players I've worked with, sometimes like some players kind of go under the radar, but just do everything brilliantly. You know, like some of those small things like are always kind of passing to the right foot, or always just passing exactly where the ball should be so that, the overlapping players not breaking their stride. Others will just do whatever you want with the ball. Um, You know, I think, for example, if you take a look at our midfield, we've got um, our current midfield at the minute, you know, we've got really varied players. You've got big, tall Phil Billing, who, you know, can literally put the ball 70 yards anywhere you want. You've got Aaron Moy, who just can pick holes apart. And then you've got Alex Pritchard, who some of the stuff I've seen him do is just, Ridiculous. You know, who who's the best out of those? You know, you've got Johnny, Johnny Hogg in there that is literally just his intensity in terms of breaking up counter attacks and everything is phenomenal. So they've all got that level because they're good players. They're, they're all good players in different ways. Um, but I think probably technically, technically, the best player I've worked with is um, a Turkish guy called Hakan Shalhanlu, a lad that plays at AC Milan now. Oh, uh, who's the free kick specialist. And what stood out um, for him? Just first touch, um, seeing him, but again, you know, maybe it's quite a small thing, but his ability to, to hit a free kick from anywhere and do anything he wanted with it, you know, in terms of whether it was a knuckleball and whether it was a, a whip in, whether it was a driven one, he just could kind of do what he wanted with the ball. And uh, it was effectively everything I never was as a player. So, you know, those sorts of people <laughs> I love, and someone else who um, was absolutely fantastic, who probably I got at the end of his career um, was Steve McPhail. Um, uh,
0: yeah. Okay, the lad from yeah. at Leeds he had a just, successful career at Leeds.
1: You know, he could just play in a game and just not ever get out of first gear. I'm sure he was out of first gear, but every time the ball got played into him, he never looked rushed, he always looked calm. And the amount of times I'd seen him playing sort of FA Cup games or whatever and some of the lower league teams would try and, like you say, really rattle him and they just couldn't get near him and he didn't break a sweat and you could have folded his kit up um, at the end of it. And to boot, he was an incredibly just good guy and great professional. Um, so like you say, there's all these um, different attributes that, that players bring, you know, like is, you know, is Mane better than Van Dyke You know, they're both top players but they bring different different things so i think i've worked with some really good players but they all kind of bring different things
0: i think that's a, a that's a, a perfect way for us to to, to finish on lads and, and i appreciate you know carl it's it, it's not always easy and, and christy when you're working within the game to give so much uh, you know to to give your opinions particularly around players so i appreciate the uh, the honesty and and from my own perspective lads I absolutely love that that was uh, a really enjoyable podcast and Cal uh, particularly given that you're at the team hotel and you managed to successfully go to a team meeting and then come back and join the podcast I very much appreciate Thank it you lads. so